You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Watsika is a little town south of Chicago, in the center of Illinois County, Illinois. It is today an unpretentious Midwestern town, much in the same vein of hundreds of other small towns that dot the maze of cornfields in that part of the world. 140 years ago, however, something happened in Watsika that would cause it to be remembered forever after. In the 1870s, the little town of Watsika had a population of just over 1,500 well-to-do Methodists seeking to make a life on the ever-shrinking prairie. Though Chicago was 90 miles north, it might as well have been a world away. In the days before automobiles, journeys of such distance were rarely taken unless completely necessary. The Venom family had relocated there in 1871, and had spent the better part of a decade as upstanding citizens of the community. They attended church weekly, knew their minister and neighbors well, and read the good book to their children every night. In the Illinois heartland, life was simple yet rough. So it was with a sudden shock when the Venom's younger daughter, Mary, otherwise known as Larency, began to have strange experiences within the house, and her health began to fail. You're listening to Devilry, and I'm Matthew William Motzinger. The trouble began one night in early July 1877, as Lurency lay asleep in her bed. She awoke to hear someone calling her name. Several people, actually, though she could see no one in her room. Brancy, Rancy, they beckoned, calling her by her family nickname. Some calls were so close that she could feel someone breathing on her face. The strangeness continued the next night, as every time she attempted to sleep, voices came to her from the darkness. Rancy, Rancy, they repeated. Her mother comforted her that night by sleeping in the same room, and the voices ceased. She was finally able to get a good night's rest. Later that week, on the 11th of July, Larency was hard at work sewing when she suddenly laid down her working material and fell to the floor. 
Her mother, checking on her, suggested that she get something to eat, but Larency said that she did not feel so well, and brought her hand to her chest, as if in pain. She doubled over and began to convulse. In the middle of the fit, she became rigid, with every muscle frozen in place, and looked, for all intents and purposes, as if she was dead. She lay like that for five hours. When she came to, out of the epileptic fit, all that she could say was that she felt very strange and queer. The next day, she experienced the same thing, only this time, she was able to remain somewhat conscious and talk to her family. It is here that things take a somewhat supernatural turn, for as she lay there frozen to the floor, Larency began to describe to her mother entities, spirits which surrounded her, and came in and out of the room. Already worried for her sickened daughter, her mother's fear turned to dread as Larency began to call to her brother and sister. The only thing was, Larency's brother and sister had been dead for some time. Oh mother, she cried out, can't you see them? Little Laura and Bertie, they're so beautiful. As time went on, the attacks continued and followed the same pattern. She would feel a strange pain or dizziness and would freeze up in a cataleptic state, free to speak, but not move. She would claim to see the spirit realm and to converse with the dead and see angels, as well as other things she could not describe. These sort of sudden attacks kept up for months until seeming to fade in late September of that same year. After this time, she seemed to be free of the strange ailment that dogged her. On the 27th of November, however, she was struck again with another fit. It started first with a pain in the stomach that left her bedridden. They occurred without warning or cause throughout the day. Every time the pain came on, she would double backward in a bizarre motion, her head touching her feet, like something out of The Exorcist. This kept up for nearly two weeks. After that time, whenever one of the stomach pains came upon her, she began to fall into a trance-like state as before, seeing visions of spirits surrounding her. These fits increased in intensity and time, until Larency was spending 8-12 to 12 hours a day in this condition. Sometimes it was noted that she would go into a kind of ecstasy. When coming out of the trance, she would claim that she had visited heaven. These attacks continued every day until the middle of January 1878. All during this time, she had been attended by a Dr. Pitwood and a Dr. Jewett, as well as family and friends. No one could find any cause or cure for such an odd case as hers, and her family, worn out with caring for her, began to seek other options. Their local minister, Reverend Baker, advised sending the girl to an asylum, where they would be better equipped to take care of her, as everyone in her town and family believed her to be insane. 
This was, for all intents and purposes, a death sentence. To be in an insane asylum in the 19th century was something out of a horror novel. Had she been admitted, she would have become a ward of the state. Common practices for manic states were things like hydrotherapy, the practice of submerging a patient in a tub of water for hours on end, wrapped up like a mummy, or sprayed with ice-cold water in showers until their mania ceased. Out of such institutions would come electroshock therapy and the commonly known lobotomy. To the Venoms, it would be like losing yet another child. So it was, perhaps with some luck or divine providence, that Azza Rof showed up at their door one cold winter day to plead with the Venoms not to send their daughter away. Mr. Roth was a spiritualist who lived in the other end of town and was not well known to the Venoms. But, as is so often the case, word travels fast in a small town. Mr. Roth had only a decade earlier admitted his own daughter into an asylum under similar circumstances and had watched as his precious little girl wasted away and died there. He wished this on no one and offered a different explanation for what was happening to Larency. He suggested that she was a medium with whom, for some reason, the spirit world could communicate, and asked for her father's permission to investigate the case with a Dr. Stevens, who was also a spiritualist. Larency's father, perhaps holding out hope that his little girl could be cured, consented. It was no consolation to the family to have a spiritualist in the house. They were good Christians, after all. But if it saved his girl from a gruesome death, he would do anything he could. On January 31st, the pair of men came to call on Larency at her home, with members of the family present. They hoped to question her about her condition, though her father noted that the young girl had been acting very queer that day. She had been sullen all morning, calling her parents obscene names they had never heard her say before. When Dr. Stevens approached, she growled in a deep voice not to come any closer. He obliged and sat some distance away. When he asked why she did not want him near, she simply said, you're a spiritual doctor, and said that he would understand her. He began with some excitement, his line of questioning. What is your name, he inquired. Katrina Hogan, came a gruff reply. How old? Sixty-three years, she said. And where from? Germany. How long ago did you arrive? Three days. And how did you come here? Through the air. How long will you stay? Three weeks. Throughout her questioning, Larency's manner began to change. She was relaxed, not so snappy or irritable. She told the doctor that she would tell him the truth now, that she was not a woman, but was actually Willie, 
Willie Canning. His father had been Peter Canning. He had run away from home and lost his life in some unknown way. Questioning went on until the spirit of Willie became tired and began putting questions to the two men. What manner of men were they? Where had they been? What were their morals? Were they upright? Etc. Until, exasperated by the experience and the seeming spirit's obtuse nature, the men rose to leave. It was then that the body of Larency leapt up and then fell immediately to the floor, stiff as a board. Her hands stuck straight up in the air like iron bars, as Dr. Stevens described it. The sweet voice of Larency began to speak again, saying that she was in heaven. The men sat back down and began again their line of questioning, while she lay there on the ground. Although she enjoyed her heavenly existence, she deplored her body being inhabited by such unruly and impolite spirits as Willie and Katrina. Dr. Stevens then suggested that while she was in a state of control, to invite a presence that might be happier than the others. She advised that there were many spirits around her, but only one the angels desired to come in. Her name, she said, was Mary Roth. Mr. Roth jumped up in excitement. That's my daughter, Mary Roth. That's my girl. She's been in heaven these twelve years, he said with excitement. Yes, let her come, he said making assurances that she was a good person and smart. Larency took counsel with the spirits and decided shortly after to allow the spirit of Mary Roth to inhabit her body while she stayed in heaven to get better. She said that she would return later when preparations were made. The excited men left that night Mr. Roth in delirious animation at the thought of seeing his poor Mary again. He did not have to wait long. The next day, Mr. Venom sent word to Mr. Roth that the girl now claimed to be Mary and was very homesick and cried often. She did not know the place or the people that were now around her and wanted to see her ma and pa again. When Larency came to the Roth's household, she was a much different person than what they had seen yesterday. Gone was the catatonic states of rigidity. Gone was the irritable rudeness which had characterized her the day before. In its place stood a sweet but timid girl. She took her new surroundings with ease, displaying memories which, on all accounts, could only be known by close family members. When she spied her sister coming to visit, she cried out, There comes my ma and sister Nervy, Nervy being the nickname for Minerva Alter, Mary's sister. No one had called Minerva Nervy since Mary's death. As they came into the house, Mary ran to her and threw her arms around Nervy and began to cry with joy at seeing her again. When the Roths asked how long she would stay, Mary replied, the angels had given her until May, 
Relatives and friends abhorred the situation. The young daughter sent to live with strangers, who claimed to be inhabited by another spirit. It was strange, bizarre, and the work of the devil, or of lunacy, or of something unnatural. All this was perhaps true. There was nothing normal about Lawrence's case. But to her parents' consolation, though it was surely hard on them, she was alive and she was well, and she seemed to be doing much better. But most of all, she was not in an asylum. Later, more religious family members would advise that they would soon wish she was in one before long. Mary, or Larency, or whatever you want to call her, was content in her new life. She took up Mary's old room, her manners, and knowledge, right where she had left off before she died. When friends came to visit, she called them by their first name. Conversing with them, she would bring up little intimacies, only known or remembered between them. She never brought up the venoms, and when asked about them, professed no knowledge of them whatsoever. On one occasion, when living with the Roths, a family friend named Mary Lord came to visit. When Mary Roth had still been alive, Lord had been a widow. Since Mary Roth's death, however, Mary Lord had remarried and went by the name Mary Wagner. When Mrs. Wagner entered the house, Mary sprung up and hugged her, exclaiming, Oh, Mary Lord, you look so very natural and have changed the least of anyone since I came back. It was with some shock, then, when Mary Roth learned of Lord's marriage and her new name. During another time, while Mary was out, Mr. Roth sought a way to test her and placed a velvet headdress out that Mary had worn just before her death. Upon entering the house and seeing it, she recognized it instantly and exclaimed, My velvet headdress, when I wore when my hair was short, do you remember, Pa? In another test of the girl's authenticity, Mr. Roth asked Mary if she remembered anything of their trip to Texas. She replied, Yes, Pa. I remember the crossing of the Red River and of seeing many Indians there. I remember Mrs. Reed's girls, who were in our company. Mary would sometimes go into trances and visit heaven. While there, she would claim to have eaten dinner and would go long stretches without eating anything in the physical world. She would also relate disturbing messages, saying that she had seen dead relatives of visitors to the home. These instances aside, Dr. Stevens, who took it upon himself to record the event, sat the girl down in order to discern if whoever it was inside Larency was actually Mary Roth, and not an imposter, or some act of trickery. He asked her to describe Mary's life before she died. Mary recalled her former sickness, which she had had since she was young. She had spells very similar to that of Larency, with violent fits that sometimes left her rigid. She remembered being cared for by doctors, and bleeding was often prescribed to fix her ailments. She would sometimes cut her own arm in order to do the bleeding. One time when she did this, she bled so excessively 
as she passed out in the backyard. When she came to, she was not herself, but raving mad. Despite her weakened condition from loss of blood and her small stature of just over 100 pounds, it took five grown men to restrain her to her bed. After her fit was over, more strangeness occurred. She recognized no one from her immediate family and seemed to no longer have any use of her senses. She claimed to no longer be able to see, but could still read things perfectly. Her family tested her by blindfolding her, after which she was still able to do all manner of natural things. She would dress herself, searching through her dresser drawers, picking up pins left on the floor, and even read books, all with the blindfold on, as if she was looking right at them. As a test of this, after being heavily blindfolded, her family members mixed her letters with that of their own. When given the stack, Mary searched through them, finding her own letters, opened them, and began to read them. All the while, the blindfold being secured over her eyes. This condition lasted several days, until she came back to a normal state of mind, with the occasional fit to interrupt her sanity. She was sent away to an institution, but not long after, in July of 1865, while her parents were away in Peoria, Illinois, Mary took a hearty breakfast. She lay down for a nap, but was heard to scream. When the attendants came in, they found her again in a catatonic state, and within a few minutes, she had died. When Mary, still in Larency's body, was asked where she had cut herself, she lifted up her sleeve to show the good doctor, only to stop halfway through the motion of tracing the mark, saying, This is, of course, not my arm. That arm is buried in the ground. Mary, while in Larency's body, also began to manifest clairvoyant abilities. As one afternoon drew on, she warned Frankie, her brother, to be careful during the night. He would catch a cold, and if he were not cared for properly, he would die. Dr. Stevens had been to see the family that evening, and had left to a different part of town to see another client. At two in the morning, the family was awoken by a sudden convulsion and spasm of coughing coming from Frankie's room. Mary, after realizing her prediction had come to pass, advised someone to go to the marshes next door to fetch the doctor. No one knew what she was talking about, as it was assumed the doctor had stayed somewhere on the other side of town when he had finished up for the night. So it was with some surprise that the doctor answered the summons when the Rolfs called on him at the Marsh's house. He had come there that night just after 9 o'clock for a final appointment, and decided to stay instead of returning the next morning. Upon entering Frankie's room, however, he found that Mary already had the situation under control. He advised her on what else she could do to help her brother, or at least stave off the peculiar illness that had struck him. Mary attended him throughout the night with the doctor's aid, and it was generally agreed by all that she had saved his life. 
Later, during a dinner party, when everyone else had gathered in the parlor, Mary decided to play a trick on one of the family friends. Choosing to leave her own body and enter into that of the friends, she proceeded to laugh and say things that only Mary might know while her spirit was in control of the gentleman. Looking over, she laughed when she saw the uninhabited body of Larency leaning limp against a friend. After her joke had been felt, she jovially left the body of the disgruntled man and entered back into that of Larency's. Larency's family, the Venoms, came consistently to check on her. Though Mary was courteous to them, she maintained that before inhabiting Larency's body, she never knew them. The family, though skeptical of the whole situation, was at least happy to see their daughter, that is Larency, to be physically getting better. Her attacks were non-existent. She seemed happier than she'd ever been. So it was with some surprise that Mr. Roth found Mary crying to herself one morning in late May. When he asked what was the matter, Mary replied that the angels had been to see her and had warned her that Larency's time to return to her body had come and that Mary would need to return to heaven with them soon after. She was left to say her goodbyes. Her and her father said a prayer and thanked God for their time together and sang a hymn. She called Nervy to her to spend some last hours together. Goodbyes were not easy for the family, who had already lost their daughter once. She gave assurances to her grieving family that she would always be with them, even if they could not see her. For a brief time, an altercation of personalities between the two girls took place, as if a struggle for dominance was happening. But, as promised, the spirit of Larency did return for good. When Larency finally came to, she began to dress those present with formal titles. The doctor asked her how she had felt, to which she responded that she felt she had been in a dream, but she knew that she had not. The men asked her to describe where she had been, but she either could not or chose not to. She asked to be returned to her home at the Venom's family residence. Through this process, Mary, as well as Larency, had written letters to Dr. Stevens, who kept a record of them his whole life. He made a note not only of how different the girls acted while in the two different states, but also that her handwriting drastically changed between the two personalities. Larency, for her part, never again suffered an attack, and seemed to somehow be cured from her sickness. Mary was never reported to have returned to occupy her body and stayed forever with the angels. Larency grew up to be a strikingly beautiful woman with a stoic demeanor. She would go on to marry a local man and live a normal, fulfilling life. She bore 11 children and never suffered a relapse. Spirit possession, though rarely noted in history, was all too common during the spiritualist movement of the late 19th century. Plagued by death and disease, and suffering after the most devastating war in American history, people sought solace in the occult, and a new religion was born. 
Many a hack was produced by this, as with all religions. But some, like the Watsika Wonder, seem altogether uncanny. If it was a fabrication on the part of the participants, it certainly was so elaborate as to require faith that they were able to pull it off without slipping. Moreover, what would be the benefit? The Ross, for their part, may have been spiritualists, but the Venoms were not. They faced ridicule and scorn from the town, as well as going against their own minister's beliefs, all in the hope that the girl might be made well. The Roths, on their side, saw it as a mixed blessing, as community sentiment saw this exchange of persons as unnatural. This seems to argue that motive could not be questioned. Adding to the perplexity of the story, this new Mary that arose in Larency during the spirit possession knew intimate details Larency simply could not know, as Mary died when Larency was just one year old. And before the spirit possession, Larency had no knowledge of the Roths themselves. It was only when Mary became manifest in Larency that she began not only to recognize them, but call them Ma and Pa, and Nervi, her sister. Further, after the possession took place, she treated her own family like strangers. Even the case of madness cannot suffice to explain why or what happened. Had Mary actually come back from the dead? Dr. Stevens went on to publish his story of Larency in a pamphlet entitled The Witsika Wonder, and the case drew worldwide attention. The American Society for Psychical Research took interest in the case in 1890, when it was reviewed by Dr. Richard Hodginson, a respected member of the society. Dr. Hodgson was a renowned skeptic and personally interviewed witnesses in Watsika. His conclusion was that there was no doubt that the incident did occur, and that if it was not proof of spiritual existence, then there was evidence that Larency was operating in some kind of dual personality with supernatural powers, something he found even more fantastic than the idea that she was possessed by a spirit. Early psychologist Frank Hoffman made the case that Larency suffered from a, quote, hysterical personation. In the small town, over many years, Larency must have gathered enough information from old gossip and news columns that when her mental illness hit, she formed a second personality buried in her subconscious that became manifest and was able to supply the wonders talked about in the book by telepathically reading the minds of those around her. Other psychologists echo later ideas of Jung, but the abstract nature of our own consciousness. William James touched on this case in his book Principles of Psychology, and notes that the case of Larency Venom reminds us of how fragile our consciousness really is. He asserts that it could be replaced either by the dark depths of our own psyche, or perhaps by an external one that we don't understand. With these assertions, it would seem just as unbelievable that Larency would herself create a persona of an individual long dead, then have the skill and ability to do the strange and obscure things which are detailed here. It would seem just as strange to me to say that somehow, somewhere, the spirit of Mary Roth did come back to the land of the living. 
Those of folkloric bent have rarely seen such a case, at least not before the 19th century and the rise of the spiritualist movement. What we have seen, however, is a spirit possession of another sort, and quite often. While demonic possession often takes a lethal overtone in many cases, the more playful sort of possession, if it can be called that, is known to take place with fairy spirits, or those of the elemental or daemon type of creatures talked about in our previous podcasts. These possessions are often more obscure. Like the Fae themselves, they seem more interested in trickery, confusion, and misguiding. Their proclivity for foresight is well documented and is not necessarily supernatural, as described brilliantly in Mark Pennington's 2002 thriller, The Mothman Prophecies, when the main character, John Klein, seeks answers of how the Mothman seems to be able to see both past, present, and future. His colleague, Alexander Leake, points to a man cleaning windows on a Chicago skyscraper and says, look up there. If there was a car crash 10 blocks away, that window washer up there could possibly see it. Now that doesn't mean that he's God, or even smarter than we are. It just means that from wherever he's sitting, he can see you a little farther down the road. Devilry is written and produced by me, Matthew William Motzinger. Music by Kevin McLeod. If you enjoy listening to Devilry and would like to help support us, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. To keep up to date on all things Devilry, you can follow us on Twitter, at DevilryPod, or on Facebook, at facebook.com forward slash devilrypodcast. A full transcript of this episode as well as a complete bibliography is available at devilrypodcast.com. Go there if you'd like to learn more about the strange and terrible things of the world. Stay weird, my devils. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.